Good morning, church. How are you all this morning? Well, I hope you had a good Easter, and I hope you've been enjoying some beautiful spring weather. You have probably figured out by now that I am not a pastor at South Spring Baptist Church. The fact that I don't have red hair is a dead giveaway. So uh, I'm actually not even on staff. My name's Jason Wallace. I go to church here. I'm a member here. We love uh, serving at this church and being a part of this church. And so I welcome you this morning. If you missed last week, we are going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 11 this week, and we finished up with 1 Samuel chapter 10 last week, and so I'm going to catch you up, but I'd encourage you to grab a Bible if you've got one, if you brought one with you. If you don't, there's probably one in the seat in front of you, or um, grab it on your phone because uh, you're going to need it this morning. We're going to hop around quite a bit, and I want to make sure that you can keep up with me. So uh, we're going to talk about 1 Samuel chapter 11, but before we do, if you were here last week, you know that 1 Samuel chapter 10 is what we finished off at, Um, but we've actually been walking uh, through 1 Samuel uh, for quite some time now, and I'm actually going to cover a whole chapter, which is a pretty fast pace for our church today, so we're going to see how this goes. Uh, But we've been covering, really spending a lot of time in starting in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and what we're learning about is uh, the people's desire to have a king and how the king of Israel, the first king of Israel gets selected. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 8, you might recall, if you have been hanging with us, uh, is really the beginning we see of this problem. And Samuel is, uh, is, uh, is the last judge, he's older, and uh, the people of Israel come to him and they say, hey, we don't really feel like you have a great succession plan. Um, your kids are really not doing a great job. And we've been talking and we actually think we'd like a king. And we like a king because we see all these other nations around us that are more prominent than us and more powerful than us, and they all have a king, and we want to be like them, so we would like a king as well. And Samuel says, hey, listen, this is not a good idea. Uh, But the people of Israel keep pushing back and keep insisting, and so this to me is an example of the phrase, the grass is always greener on the other side. Do you know this phrase? This is exactly the situation that we find the people of Israel in. Very similar to this right here, which I love this picture because uh, you actually probably see this around here. And I'm from central Houston. I don't know how long it takes to get to the place where you can see a cow, but I see a cow like every day now. And so I love living in Tyler for lots of reasons, but one of which is because I've actually seen this on my drive to work a time or two. And so here this actually means something because you've probably seen this in person. And this is a great picture of how the people of Israel are acting. They're stubborn, they're persistent, and Samuel is frustrated with the situation. He actually goes to God and kind of pours his heart out to God. And God actually tells Samuel, hey, listen, Samuel, this is actually not about them rejecting you. This is actually about them rejecting me. And so if you can picture God saying that about his people, that they're rejecting him, that their uh, position that they're taking where they want a king and they want to put a man up in the place where God should be and, and just disregard all the stuff that had happened previously, that is an offense to God. And so he tells Samuel, hey, listen, don't worry about it. We're going to give him a king, but you need to warn them ahead of time that this is not going to go well for them, that he's going to put them to work, that he's going to send them to war that they're going to have to pay taxes, all these problems that are going to arise with having a king. You need to give them a heads up about this and make sure that they know what they're getting themselves into. And so Samuel does all that, and they are insistent. And so the next project that Samuel goes on is he goes out to find the king that God has sovereignly appointed and selected to be the first king of Israel. And Samuel runs into Saul when he's out looking for donkeys. 
Never actually finds them, by the way, but he's out looking for them. And Samuel tells Saul, hey, listen, you're going to be the next king of Israel. And as you can imagine, he's very caught off guard by this. But Samuel proves this to him, gives him an anointing, and then the Spirit of God rushes upon uh, Saul, and he's able to prophesy and do great things. And this is actually the, the, the place that we are with Saul, where this is really the only thing he's done that's spectacular. He's really incredibly unqualified to be a king. And so unqualified that when, and so unprepared to be the king, that when Samuel says, hey, let's go get Saul, let's take him in front of the people, and so we're going to present him before the people, they can't find him, right? He's hiding in the baggage. If you were here last week and you heard about this, Saul hears that he's going to be the king, and the first thing that he does is he goes and hides. And so he's tucked away in the baggage, and they go looking for him, they're casting lots, and finally they figure out where he does, and when Saul kind of Russell's the baggage, and he comes out. He's this big, imposing, impressive, handsome man. And so because of that, all the people say, that's our king. Long live the king. And so they affirm Saul as the first king of Israel. Now, there are a few people that are some naysayers. There's some critics, and we're going to see them a little bit again later in 1 Samuel chapter 11, but that's where we are. The last time we've seen Saul, he was hiding in baggage, but he was affirmed and praised by the people as the new king. And that's where 1 Samuel chapter 11 picks up. So we're going to read the first four verses together of 1 Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, on this condition I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of, elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gilbeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Okay, so there's a lot happening in these four verses, and there's a lot of historical stuff that we need to talk about, like who Nahash is. Nahash is the leader of the Ammonites, and the Ammonites are a people that are just east of the Jordan, and these people are vicious, right? They're neighbors of Israel, and they are known, and they have a reputation for being incredibly violent and incredibly oppressive. If you want to learn more about them, you can go read in Amos 1. It's a pretty gruesome account as to what they do with the people that they capture. And so these people are known throughout the land of being people that you do not mess with. And they are on the attack in a city in Israel called Jabesh-Gilead. And I want to show you where Jabesh Gilead is for a couple reasons. One is because I really love maps. I think they're amazing and mesmerizing. For whatever reason, I start looking at a map, and not a Google map, like a paper map, and I'm, I'm just mesmerized by that. And the other thing is, is because if you use a map, they give you a laser pointer here. And so uh, I'm going to hang with this for a minute. So if you're looking at this map, this is Israel, and up here you can see Jabesh Gilead, right? It's this little town up here on the kind of eastern side. And you see over here on the eastern side of them is Ammon. And so if you're coming into the nation of Israel and you want to attack it, you're going to come in from the eastern side and you're going to attack first Jabesh Gilead. It's an easy city to come to. It's a small city probably. They probably don't have a lot of resources to defend themselves. They're very remote. You think of it like an outpost, right? And so it's the first stop along the way of Nahash is coming in to take over Israel. He's going to stop at Jabesh Gilead first. And so he goes in there, and, in, and what's amazing about this is not that he comes and attacks them, right? This is what tyrants do. And it's not that he attacks Jabesh Gilead first, because they're right there on the border, and they would be the first place to go. 
What's amazing to me that happens here in verse one is how quickly the people of Jabesh Gilead roll over, right? They don't even make it to the first verse. And they're already ready to make a treaty with this guy and serve him. Right? This is a people, the people of Israel have a long history of God coming in and rescuing them and fighting battles for them, and they don't make any mention of calling on God here. It's pretty convicting. When they're pushed back up against the wall, when they have no way out, they don't think about God, they don't seek God. In fact, not only that, but if you recall in the previous chapters, they had already rejected God as their king, but they're quite welcome to make Nahash their king. When they make a treaty, when they make a covenant with somebody, when they allow a pagan nation to rule over them, that's strictly forbidden in the book of Exodus. Because that was God's job, was to come and protect them. But the people take matters into their own hands. And if, if you had been here years ago, a while back we did, we went to the book of Judges, and the very last verse in the book of Judges is a verse that says, all the people did right in their own eyes. Right? They're all doing what they think is in their own best interest. And that's what the people of Jabesh Gilead are here doing. They say, hey, we're going to make a treaty with you. We're going to set you up. We're going to be our king. We're going to serve you. And Nahash is happy to do that. He's like, hey, that's great for me. I don't have to go to battle. Happy to make a treaty with you. I got one condition for you that we're going to gouge out your right eye. So I don't know about you, but I don't feel like this is a great deal. Right? I don't, I'm not feeling comfortable with this. Uh, the people of Israel are like, you know, we might consider that, so just hang on a minute. But there's a strategic reason that Nahash is thinking about gouging out their right eye. Okay, he didn't say he wanted to gouge out both of their eyes because then he couldn't do any work for them. Right? He wants to gouge out their right eye because he wants to keep them from revolting against him. And if you don't have your right eye, you've got no depth perception, you can't shoot an arrow, you're, if you've got your shield up, it's probably covering your left eye. And so this would make them basically powerless to push back against him if they ever decided to revolt against him. But it made them capable enough with one eye to be able to do things like work and work a trade and create income and work agriculture so they could be his servants for him, they could pay taxes to him, and he could have a people that he could rule over. It also doesn't hurt that it humiliates the nation of Israel and that it shows all the other nations around him what an impressive, victorious leader here is that he was able to take these people so easily. And they don't think about God at all. They consider this and they say, hey, uh, if you could do us a favor before you come in and take our eye, how about you give us seven days to go out and to see if we can get anybody to come save us? Now, you might think, hey, if Nahash is such an impressive military leader, why would he allow them to go out and to think about finding somebody to see if they can save him? Well, if Nahash is a smart guy, he knows, hey, these people in Jabesh Gilead, they're pretty remote. I'm going to give them seven days probably not going to be able to get very far. And so if they have anybody that actually responds and cares about them and comes up, it's going to be another part of Israel, and they're not a unified nation, and they don't have a strong military leader that we know of. And so because of that, hey, why don't y'all just go ahead and go get them? You'll bring them up here. I'll take them out as well. I'll gouge out their eyes as well. And then I'll have twice as many servants. This is going to be great. And so he allows them to go out and send messages out to all the cities of Israel around, the ones that you saw all over those maps. They're trying to get the word out to say, hey, we, uh, we need some help here. And so they send a message out, and a me that message makes its way to Gibeah. And so I'm going to use my laser pointer again. Here you go. This is still cool. So uh, I got Gibeah down here. So these people in Jabesh Gilead had to get a message all the way down over here to, Gilead, to Gibeah, which is kind of over here by Jerusalem a little bit, where all these people are. And so you can see why the messages 
would make their way down there because that's where the people are that can possibly come to help them. And what's interesting is, it says in the text that they go to Saul's hometown of Gibeah. So up until this point, we have no evidence that the people of Jabesh Gilead are praying. We certainly don't have any evidence that they're saying, hey, remember that king that we just appointed like mm, a few verses ago? Let's call that guy. It's his job to come and help us. Why don't we call him? So it is possible because of how remote Jabesh Gilead is that if there was a city that wasn't going to know about Saul yet, it's probably them. And so you've got to give them a little bit of grace here and say, hey, maybe they didn't know about Saul. But the message makes its way to Saul's hometown. And the reaction of the people here, just like Jabesh Gilead, is not to call on God. It's to weep. Right? And so what normally you would want to see here is people would say, hey, we're weeping. We're in this situation. Our brothers are in trouble. Why don't we call on God? But they're probably not actually weeping because they're worried about their brothers up in Jabesh Gilead. They're probably more likely weeping because they know that Nahash is going to come for them. If you recall when he said he was going to gouge out their right eye, it said he was doing so because he wanted to bring disgrace on all Israel. And he was not going to stop in Jabesh Gilead. He was going to do just what those messengers did. He was going to come down and he was going to go start attacking where all the people were. And so these people, in my estimation, are, are weeping because they know, hey, this is not going to stop with them. He's coming for us. We're in trouble as well. They're scared. They're frightened. They don't call on God. And nobody even thinks, even in Saul's hometown, to call the king. These people are desperate, they're scared, and it's not even in their train of thought to call on God or God's new appointed king. And so let's look and see what actually happens here. So we're going to read on in verse 5. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. When he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled, he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow... By the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together." And so they end up again in, in uh, Gibeah, in Saul's hometown, and nobody thinks, hey, let's go get the king. He lives right down the street. Let's go knock on his door and see if we can make something happen here. Nobody thinks about that. Saul just happens to be coming up, walking behind his oxen. He really didn't know what to do as the king, so he's out in the field doing what he's always done. He's farming, and so he comes out and he says, hey, why, why is everybody weeping here? What's going on? And then when he hears these words, it says something really interesting here. And the order of this is important. It says, the spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words and his anger was greatly kindled, right? It doesn't just say that Saul got angry. 
And it doesn't say that Saul got angry and the spirit of God then came upon him. It says the spirit of God came upon him and that propelled him to anger, which is what motivated him to go and do something. And this is how God was going to transition the story right here to use Saul in a supernatural way. And this idea of anger being instituted by God is not an unfamiliar thing, although we may be a little bit uncomfortable with it. In the Old Testament, we see this quite a bit where God's people aren't being protected, and so he comes in and he, uh, and he wipes out a people who aren't protecting or who are coming against his nation. And you've got to think about this as a, maybe a father protecting his kids, right? This is God's job as the king of the nation, and all the history they had is this is God's job is to protect his kids. And he can't resist because he's a great dad. Now, if that picture doesn't stick with you, you might want to think about a mom and the way that she might protect her kids, right? So if a mom ever feels like her kids are threatened or they're unprotected or they're unsafe, if you've ever seen this happen, what comes out? It's that mama bear, right? You know, you just get out of the way, okay? You watch out because if a mama bear is coming on and protecting those babies, you do not want to be in the middle of that. And that's the picture we see here. God's kids are being threatened, and he can't stand by and watch. Even if the people rejected him, he intervenes in a supernatural way to set Saul up in a position where he can have influence over the nation, and he can do something about this issue. But this doesn't just stop in the Old Testament, right? We see examples of this even in the New Testament. We see Jesus flipping over tables. Um, If you've seen the show, The Chosen, I don't want to give anything away, but I've been watching it in the end of the second season. There's a scene where Jesus heals a man who uh, is in the temple and has a withered hand. And that story is from Mark 3. And in Mark 3, it says that Jesus actually was angry at the Pharisees for for their response and him working that miracle. It says later on, he calls him, later on in Matthew, he calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers. And Paul says in Ephesians, he tells us to be angry and do not sin. So there is this way that we can be angry and yet not sin. It's a righteous anger. It's an anger that God has when he sees his people being taken advantage of, when he sees his people unsafe and unprotected, and he can't help himself like a great father to step in and help them. And so he does, and he uses Saul in a powerful and mighty way to do it. And so Saul's idea here is, because now he's been empowered by the Spirit, you got this unqualified guy, he's basically been a farmer, he's been a donkey chaser. He knows how to carry luggage. That's about all that he's done, okay? That's all he has to qualify him to be the king. And now all of a sudden the spirit comes upon him. He's angry and we're going to see him turn into this uh, powerful military leader. And so he sends a message out, right? And he needs the people to know immediately this is serious. So he does two things. One, he attaches Samuel's name to it because everybody in the nation may not know about Saul yet, but they all know about Samuel. And when, you, when Samuel tells you to come to a place, you go to a place. And just in case you didn't think that going to war was a great idea, I'm going to make sure you know that I'm serious. And so I got this great idea. I'm just going to slice up my oxen, and I'm going to send them out with the messages. Okay, so I don't know what the symbolism here is, but I do know that if I open my mailbox and there's a dead piece of animal in there with a letter attached to it, I am paying attention. Okay, I'm opening that letter. I want to know what's going on in there. Okay, it's ads and a cow's ear. And so if you see this, if you get this, you know that this guy's serious. You know that Samuel's name being attached to it 
And the extreme dramatic presentation of this is enough to get your attention. And so you know that we got to go to this place. And he, like a good military leader, picks a strategic location for them to go to. Let me show you this on the map again. We're going to look back over here. And if you remember, Jabesh Gilead is up kind of here in this northeast. If you look right across the Jordan River, there's a little city there called Bezek, right over here on the end of this yellow line. And so he tells everybody, if he, he came down here from Gibeah and all these places, they're all to go up to Bezek, and they're all to meet right up here across the river from Jabesh Gilead. And that's important because that would be a location where they could come to and Nahash wouldn't know they were assembling, but it's close enough to them where they could get there quickly, right? And so this is a very strategic, smart military move. And what happens is, is 330,000 people show up at Bezek. Now, if you can imagine the weight on Saul's shoulders right now from a guy who's never been in a battle, He's never led a military group and 330,000 people show up. So just to get our minds in a place where we can picture this and understand what this means, the U.S. Air Force is 330,000 people. And so what you should picture in your mind is all the resources, all the manpower of the entire U.S. Air Force coming down and showing up in Bezik ready to go to war. This is a huge army. And this is not a huge nation. They had incredible representation that showed up in Bezek. And if you remember, this is all happening, by the way, in a seven-day period. Right? So no social media, no text messages, no FedEx. Apparently, if you want to get a message out, it's cutting up oxen. That's the key. And all these people realize, hey, this is a big deal. We're going to show up, and they do. And they show up, and they're ready to fight. It says they come out as one man. And then it also says on here that he, just like a good military leader, gives a heads up to the people of Jabesh Gilead. He sends a message into them, and he says this in verse 9. He says, tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. Right? And so you're supposed to read this in a very dramatic way. You shall have salvation. So since I'm a Christian, I always picture Braveheart when I think of something like that, right? So I'm picturing William Wallace running up and down and telling the people, you give them a message. Tomorrow we will have salvation. We will have our freedom. This is the presentation he's telling them. This is a military leader who has risen up, who's emboldened, who's got the confidence of the Spirit in him, working through him, to be able to propel him, to be able to lead this group of 330,000 people. And he says, and it says here in uh, verse 10, the men of Jabesh got that message, and they took it to Nahash, and they said, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good in your sight. So, if you're the men of Jabesh Gilead and you've been there and you're desperate and you're thinking, hey, the best option we have is getting our eyes gouged out, and all of a sudden you hear, hey, just across the river, there's 330,000 people that are waiting to come and help you. You're feeling good right now. And so you say, hey, we're going to take this message, we're going to send it to Nahash, and we're going to say, hey, uh, don't worry about it, we'll come out and give ourselves up to you. And it's a very specific thing they say here. Some translations, when it says, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, goes on to say, and you may do to us whatever seems right in your eyes. Okay, so do you remember what Nahash wanted to do to them? He wanted to gouge out their eyes. 
I want you to pause real quick and realize that there's a scriptural pun buried in here. Okay, this is a holy pun. I love a good pun. And I love the fact that our God, who's got a sense of humor, says, hey, here's the way this message is going to go. This guy Nahas thinks he's a big deal. Hey, we'll see who's got eyes when this is over. Okay, so he says to them, you do whatever seems good to you. And if you're a military leader, a confident military leader, you, you know that this city's tiny. You know there's no way that they're going to be able to pull this thing together in seven days. So what do you do if you get a message that says, hey, we're going to give ourselves up to you tomorrow? You relax, right? You let your guard down. You're not worried about it. Uh, we don't exactly know what happens here, but I picture the camp celebrating, having an evening feast, partying, and going to bed early, getting ready for the next day. And it says here that Nahash, uh, excuse me, that Saul assembled the army into three distinct groups, broke them apart, sent them out to surround the people of Ammon. And at the perfect time, sometime between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. during the morning watch, they descend. Again, think about the entire Air Force coming down upon this people who have been letting their guard down overnight, and they completely wipe them out. I mean, they just destroy them. And so the question that we're supposed to ask here is, how does this happen? How does an inexperienced farmer become a powerful military leader who can somehow gather 330,000 people at a strategic military location, break them up into strategic military positions, and crush an army of people who were known for how good they were in battle? That's the question that we're supposed to ask, and actually Saul is the one in the next verses who answers it for us. So let's keep reading. Verse 12. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul the king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. This is an impressive moment for a guy who's now become this military leader, and all the people are on this high. They just had this crazy victory. They all feel great, and they're like, hey, let's just keep it going. Okay, you've got critics out there. We just took out the Ammonites. We can take those guys out. Let's go after them. And they actually spoke that word to Samuel, but Saul is the one who steps in here and says, no, 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 it's not going to happen. I want you to see something today, people. That today is not about these critics. Today is not about Saul. Today is about the God who rescues and saves the people of Israel. He is the one who brings salvation. If you're looking at Saul's life, this is probably his shining moment, right? He has this moment of clarity where he steps in, and, and Samuel affirms that, and they take him down to Gilgal. Let me just show you this map one more time because. I need to use this laser pointer again. And so they're over here in Jabesh Gilead and they fight. And so I picture them coming down the Jordan River and coming right across here to Gilgal. So they'd be walking right down the Jordan River. They'd go and Saul Samuel takes them to this very strategic place, not from a military perspective, but from the historical perspective. This is probably the same. This, Gilgal is the same place that the people went to as their first stop and set up a memorial to God when he took them and Joshua across 
the river on dry land. So the people had been in captivity in Egypt. The people had been wandering around the wilderness. God finally allowed them to leave the wilderness. He provided a route over the Jordan on dry land for the people, and they settled first in Gilgal, and they set up a memorial to God to show the people, this is how mighty your God is. Your God saves. And he wants the people to remember that message when they go to celebrate the new king and when they go to celebrate what God has done here is that this is a place where you give worship to the Lord for what he's done and for the way that he's protected his people and how he continues to protect them even after they have so clearly rejected him and replaced him. And Saul affirms that here. He says, the Lord has worked salvation. This is an impressive moment of clarity. He could have killed those guys. He could have taken them out. He had every reason to as the new leader, and the people probably would have loved him for it more, but he doesn't. He resists. And so when you look at this section of Saul here in chapter 11, it is very tempting to focus on Saul's leadership, right? It's very tempting to focus on the fact that Saul shows humility, He's uh, obedient. He's a great military leader. He has all the characteristics that you'd want in a king. And so it would be very tempting to really focus here on who Saul is. And Saul, interestingly enough, is the one who puts us in our place. And he does that because he knows firsthand better than anybody else that really the person who instituted this whole thing was God it was he, him that worked salvation, and he did that because Saul experienced verse 6, right? He experienced when the Spirit of God rushed upon him. That was the pivotal moment in this verse. That was the time when everything changed, because when God introduces his Spirit in the lives of people, everything changes. And friends, that is still true today. We have a great example of this in the New Testament. It's very similar, where God takes a group of unqualified people who had also recently been in hiding, brings his spirit upon them, and empowers them to do great things for his name. Let's look in Acts chapter 2. I'm going to go to your right a few chapters here. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language." And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And he goes on to kind of talk about some of the places where they come from and the languages they're hearing. And then we pick up in verse 12, and it says, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Isn't it interesting that there's always mockers? Right? God's doing something, and there's always naysayers. There's always going to be critics. So be warned. They survived from the Old Testament into the New Testament, so they're going to be hanging around. But what we're supposed to see here is that God is doing an amazing thing with some unqualified people. Keep in mind that these people had experienced the resurrection, but it hadn't been long since they'd been in hiding. 
They're frozen. They don't know what to do. They don't know where to go. They're waiting. They've, they've, been, they've been told they're going to do something and some gift is coming. They don't, they don't know what that means. And so they're just there waiting. And so these people are unqualified tax collectors. They're unqualified fishermen. They're tradesmen. There's nothing special about them. But when the Spirit of God comes in and the people see what's going on, it says they are amazed. They're astonished. They're perplexed. Everybody around knows that something amazing is happening. And God, again, uses unqualified people to do something incredibly powerful. You see this in the Old Testament with Saul. Unqualified. God's Spirit comes in. He does something amazing. You see this happen in this section. And there's also another place in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, that I love where it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter, keep in mind, Peter, a fisherman, was the one who had denied Jesus. But he had been there. He had experienced the Spirit. And in chapter 2, right after what we just read, he actually uh, gave a sermon where thousands of people were saved. This unqualified, uneducated fisherman sees thousands of people come save, become saved by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 13, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. There it is again. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Friends, I think this is the highest compliment that somebody can pay to a Christian. That they recognize that you and I have been with Jesus. And they recognize the power of the Holy Spirit in somebody's life. And it's unique and it's uncommon. And maybe they can't quite put their finger on it, but they know that there's something happening here. I, I got to experience this firsthand when I was a sophomore in college. I sat in a room maybe twice as big as this one in a general session for a business class that I was in. And I always was impressed with the professor who was down front. And I was great at sitting in the back row. I was great at being the first one out of class. But for some reason in this class, I always wanted to hang around. And I just kind of watched him. I watched how he taught. I watched how he interacted when people asked questions. I watched how he treated people when they came down and talked to him, and I was always astonished by it. I went through the semester, never talked to the guy, and really never saw him or took a class from him again. A year later, I became a Christian, and then a few years later after college, and even though I'd never seen the guy, never taken another classroom, I got the opportunity to go hear him speak at a session he was doing, and he talked there about his faith. And I realized, as I remembered back to this time, that what I saw in him, I couldn't put my finger on it, I couldn't explain it, didn't have language for it, but what I, what I realized was I, re, I recognized that that man had been with Jesus. I recognized that in his workplace, the spirit of God in him was so attractive that there was something different and unique about him and that God was doing amazing things through him. And so I saw this firsthand, and I know, that the, I know from, that section, from that experience that there is proof that when people live by the spirit, God does something amazing. We celebrated last Sunday the resurrection, and the resurrection is a celebration of the new life that comes with Christ. And the Spirit is provided to us as a gift so that we can live that life in a way that honors God. And so that you don't think that this is just restrict, restricted to people who are uh, kings and the disciples, I want to show you what Paul says. This is going to be our last verse this morning, Ephesians chapter 1. It's going to be a little bit over. Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 13, this is what Paul says. It says, in him you also, is the way he starts this verse. And he's talking to the church, which I am part of, so I like to read this as if 
Paul's talking to me. It says, Jason, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promise Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until you acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Paul promises that if you have heard the gospel message and received it by faith in Christ, then you are given the Holy Spirit as a gift. Even today. These disciples who were hiding and empowered by the Spirit and then spoke boldly created the church and Paul was a part of that. And so Paul helped institute this thing that we get to celebrate today and that we get to join in today and that we get to use last Sunday to celebrate the resurrection as a means for which people can hear the gospel through those of us who are believers. And that's done by the Spirit empowering people who are unqualified. So maybe you feel unqualified this morning. That's okay. God does amazing, miraculous things through his kids that are, quali- that are unqualified. And he does it by the power of the Spirit so that we can give all praise and glory and honor to him. If you've never trusted in Christ this morning and you realize, I don't have the Spirit living inside of me. I want that. I want the same Spirit that Saul had that came upon him that empowered him. I want that same Spirit that the disciples got to experience in Acts chapter 2. I want that Spirit that Paul promises in Ephesians 1 can be yours today. If you haven't put your faith and your trust in Christ, I would urge you and encourage you to do that today and be blessed by the Holy Spirit. So as we leave here today and we go out in all these places, we go to our workplaces, we go to our schools, my hope and my prayer for me and for you is that people would know that we've been with Jesus. And so my charge, my urge to you and to myself this week is, man, let's walk in faith with Jesus and let's walk in step with the Spirit and let's seek to live in such a way that honors and glorifies God, all His praise and all His glory by His Spirit. Let me pray that over us. Father, we are grateful for all the gifts that you lavish upon us. You um, sent your son to die on a cross for our sins and uh, then delivered him uh, in the new life through the power of the resurrection. Father, you give us the gift of the Holy Spirit when we put our faith and our trust in you. And while we don't deserve forgiveness, uh, you give it to us graciously. And we don't deserve the Holy Spirit and you pour it out on us that empowers us and allows us to do great things for you. And so, Father, that's what we confess we want to do when we leave here today, is we want to honor you with our lives and all that we do. So, Lord, I pray that you'd give us the strength and the power to do that by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Jason, for uh, faithfully sharing God's word with us this morning and for that clear gospel call. We know and we make the uh, assumption based on God's word that uh, he promises that his word goes out and doesn't return void. And so anytime that there is an opportunity where scripture is read and presented out, um, we uh, want to make sure that we also provide an opportunity uh, for an invitation, uh, for a chance to respond. Um, Like Jason said, maybe it is for the first time you're thinking through and saying, this Holy Spirit that has come down in power, this is something when I reflect on my life, I'm just not so sure about. And if, if that uncertainty is lying within you somewhere today, then we would pray that you would hear the same thing that these messengers are hearing, or that they delivered and said, may today be the day of salvation. Put your faith in him and count on him to do the work that only he can do, um, which is bring you to a place of eternal life with him and in right relationship.
Maybe it is that you know uh, the Lord and the spirit is inside of you and you feel that tinkling inside of something that is stirring, of something that you need to respond or you need to do or you need to stand up or you need to stand out or uh, maybe it is that you need to seek uh, confession with somebody and apologize. Maybe that person's in this room. Maybe it's the first thing you do right after this. Um, But whatever it is, we do pray that you do respond as the spirit uh, leads. And it may be lastly that you've uh, uh, met with Lance or the Welcome Home team uh, and, it's your, and you want to make uh, church membership known, now's the time to do that as well. Um, but whatever it is and whatever uh, it is that God has for you to respond, I pray that this is the time you do so. I'm going to invite you to uh, stand and sing, um, but you can take whatever posture you need to take. If you need to gather with somebody at the right side of the room and pray, if you need to come forward and pray, if you need to uh, kneel in your seat, whatever it is and however you need to respond, we pray you do so now.